Alright, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, we are going to be closing out the book of, or not the book, but chapter 7 of Hebrews, and next week we will be moving on to chapter 8. Hebrews 7 has been what qualifies Jesus to be um, the high priest, and chapter 8 breaks out and and shows us the, the practical uh, side of that, of, of what he has actually done, what he is actually doing um, as our faithful high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. <clears throat> and inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death, or they were not allowed to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able then to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, sending, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifice, first for his own sin, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself." For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that You would give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. Father, we can give thanks for this role that Jesus plays as our high priest, the one who ever intercedes for us on our behalf. And Father, certainly we can give thanks for the Spirit that takes our prayers and basically interprets them when we don't know what to pray. The grumblings that we find hard to utter, God, when it's hard for us to pray for whatever situation. Father, we thank You for Your sovereign control and sovereign hand in all matters. Father, I believe that there's not a person here this morning that was not intended to be here. Lord, I pray that You would give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. I pray that what we know not, by Your Word and by Your Spirit, You would make us. What we, what we don't know what to do, that You would help us in that as well. I pray, Father, that You would be glorified here this morning. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I've mentioned a few times already, the theme of Hebrews is Jesus is superior or Jesus is preeminent. Um, And it has been in comparison to, as we saw in chapter 1, the prophets, as they testified of Christ, they prophesied of Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. We saw that He is superior to the angels. Um, as they are ministering spirits sent to those who would inherit salvation. And a question that may have came up in, in, that, in, in these Hebrews uh, Christians' mind was, 
well, how can Jesus be superior to the angels since they don't die and He has died? And it is just that, that they serve at the beck and call of God. They serve to, to uh, further His purposes. And by the way, Jesus not only died, but He rose again. Um, and He is seated at the right hand of the Father forever. And we saw other uh, ways that Jesus is superior to that old system. And, and that's been the, the thrust behind this argument in Hebrews is these Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back to their old religion. They were tempted to go back to that, that which they were comfortable with because of the persecution that they were under now um, in, in, their, in, their, in their time. Chapter 7 then argued for the need of a new priesthood unlike the Levitical priesthood. It argued for a, a priesthood that was uh, far different than the, the, the priesthood of the Levites. We saw in verse 18 and 19 of this chapter that the law was weak and could never bring men near to God. Uh, it, it was weak. It couldn't cause us to be reconciled to God. And the recognition of that, as we've seen in, in, in Romans and even in Galatians, is that the law is only a schoolmaster to show us our need for Christ. The law is something that we look at and we recognize that we can't perfectly obey. We look at the law and we find out how much of a sinner we actually are. And that's why we look at the Gospel and we look at Christ and we realize that there is hope. Though we can't perfectly obey, Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law and, is, and has been the sacrifice and is now this high priest. These priests offered sacrifices continually. We just saw that at the end of this chapter, that they offer these sacrifices constantly. And what we see, while once a year, the Day of Atonement, there was a sacrifice to be offered for the people, before that sacrifice could be offered, the priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself. And so there was this constant busyness, this constant working, this constant doing. And because of that, as I mentioned, that the men could not draw nigh to God, and that was evidenced by the veil that was in the temple. The veil that hid the Holy of Holies, the veil that hid the mercy seat, that veil showed them that there was a block of seeing God. There was this obstruction from being able to meet God face to face as it were. These priests were the only ones allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. They were the only ones after the sacrifice that they offered for themselves were able to take that blood sacrifice offered for the people and place it on the mercy seat. But now, as we've seen in Hebrews 7, in Christ, in Hebrews chapter 6, in Christ, men draw near to God through Christ. That we, by faith, repenting of our sin, draw nigh to God through Christ. There's no wall of partition any longer. There's nothing that, that, that keeps us from approaching God in that manner. And so we look at the end of this text here this morning, and, and, and the title is the, the Greatness of the New Priesthood, or The Greatness of the Priesthood of Jesus. We see in verses 20 through 22 that, that Jesus' priesthood is superior because of the oath of the Father. The oath of the Father. As He has previously done, uh, the author brings attention to the superiority of of the priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. It's interesting to note that in the Scripture here in Hebrews, when he's talking about the priesthood, he's not talking about that old order of the Levites. Now we saw previously that to be a Levitical priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. You could not serve in that capacity from another tribe. As a matter of fact, when they were coming back from Babylon, the captivity of Babylon... 
they had to prove that they were of the genealogy of Levi to serve in the ministration of the, uh, the priests. And so he's comparing it uh, to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was this, this, this strange figure that popped up seemingly from out of nowhere. Right? There's no re- record of his genealogy. There's no record of his death. There's no record uh, of anything outside of the fact that he met Abraham on Abraham's uh, way back from the slaughter of, of the kings. And, and so what we see with Melchizedek is he was a king priest, a Gentile king priest that served God, and that looked forward to Christ, that Christ would be a priest unlike any other. This oath that we read of here in verse 20 is an allusion to chapter 6. If you'll turn back over there, chapter 6, verse 13 through 20, where, um, where the author of Hebrews brings about this oath that God made with Abraham. Verse 13 of chapter 6, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now the promise that's speaking of here was the son of, of promise. It was Isaac. Um, the, 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 the story of Abraham was God came to him, promised him a son, promised him a seed, um, and we see that Abraham tried to get ahead of, of, of God and had a, a child with his wife's handmaiden, uh, uh, Hagar. And the result of that has been fighting for thousands of years over in the Middle East. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we see the promise here, coming back to Hebrews chapter 6, saying, Blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. As a matter of fact, in the, in the account in Genesis, he tells him to look at the stars and he says, Your seed will be numbered as the stars. Now, that's not a literal in the physical sense because we see in the Scripture that when God talks of Israel in the New Testament, He's talking about the Israel of God. That is, believing Jews and believing Gentiles that comprise the Israel of God. And think about the untold number of Christians, even now, that are seated, seated standing around the throne singing praise to God. Um, so He's telling him there's a, a multitude that can't be numbered. Verse 15, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. That was the son of Isaac. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. There are some things that God cannot do. That is, he cannot change his nature and he cannot lie. If God can lie, if God is subject to change like we are, guess what it makes him? Just like we are. doesn't make him a, a, a God that is unlike any other. These two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, if God could lie, if God could change what hope would we have of eternal life? What hope would we have of salvation? If we've done something God didn't like, He could change His mind and say, yeah, you're done. I'm, you're not, you don't have that security. So we, we see God doing this, this oath, and really, He's condescending to us um, and making that oath. Um, Hendrickson and Kistemacher in their, uh, their commentary, uh, exposition to the 
to the Hebrews says this about this oath. Actually, the oath God swears is superfluous. It's unnecessary. For God Himself is truth. God should have spoke to Abraham, could have spoke to Abraham and said, this is my word, it will happen. And that would have been plenty. That would have been sufficient. For God Himself is truth. Man, because of sin, confirms the truth of His words by invoking God's name. Now, if you think you don't see this happen very often anymore, but when you would go into a court of law to be a, test, a witness for someone, what would you do? Place your left hand on a Bible, raise your right hand, and you would recite something to the effect, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You were swearing before the witnesses, those people before you, and you were swearing to God that you would testify of a truth of the events that you saw. Now, simply, we just raise our right hand and say, I, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We're not, we're not And really, we're not held to an objective standard uh, of God's Word. Going on reading here. Accommodating himself to human customs, God swears an oath. He is conscious of man's weak faith, therefore, to give man added assurance of the complete reliability of God's Word God provides the extra affirmation. Our faith is weak, right? We often don't trust in God as we should. We often try to subvert things and try to make things happen according to our timetable, according to our doing, rather than waiting on God, rather than trusting God. Reading Genesis 22, 16-17, we receive the impression that God gave the promise to Abraham, for he is the one who obtains the blessings. I will surely bless you. We, we could read that and say, well, God's going to bless Abraham. But God says to Abraham, I will bless you. But the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews makes the divine blessing, listen to this, applicable to all believers by calling them heirs of the promise. There's that Israel that we are a part of as believing Gentiles. We are a part of this Israel of God as we see in Galatians 6. That means that God's promise to Abraham transcends the centuries and is in Christ as relevant today as it was in Abraham's time. We saw this in Galatians 3, 7, 9, and 29. The oath God swore to Abraham was meant for us to strengthen us in our faith. This promise that God made to Abraham applies to us, and it is meant, since God sealed it with an oath, is meant for our faith to be strengthened. That God just didn't say something, but that He swore it by Himself. When the author writes, God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear, He reminds us the purpose of God is to make us Heirs, making us heirs. Furthermore, according to God's will, this purpose has been determined in eternity. We see this in Ephesians 1, 4-5 and verse 11. God's purpose to save the believers in Jesus Christ is firm, unchanging, and inviolable. What a promise that we have that God would uh, confirm that not only with, an, with, with, not only with His Word... John 17, 17, we haven't got to that point yet on Wednesday nights, but he says, Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. 
God's Word is the objective standard of truth that we ought to live by. God's Word is the objective standard of truth that all things are ju- that we should judge all things by. When people tell us stories about things that happened to them, guess what we do? We go to the Word. When, when, when people tell us something that seems to be a little bit extraordinary, what do we do? We judge it according to the Word. When someone is preaching to you, or someone is standing teaching you, how do you judge what they're saying as to be truth? You judge it according to the Word of God. That's our objective standard of truth. That's what I am given the task to preach is the Word of God, not my own opinion. My opinions and a couple of bucks will probably get you a cup of coffee somewhere. That's about all that matters. Right? But God's Word is invaluable. So we see in Jesus, um, or in God, uh, making Him a priest forever, He has promised, He's done it with an oath. And that oath is seen if you'll turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 4. This is another Messianic psalm that um, though uh, we think of David when, 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 when reading this, which certainly points us to Christ, David being a type of Christ, um, pointing us to Christ. And look at verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. God will not change His mind. God will not... God's not and look, God doesn't change. He, he's not caused to change by His emotions. He's not caused to change because He gains new information for He knows all things. God is not, God's not going to change. He's not going to change His mind because... Look, when God saves us, He's not going to change His mind about us because we may sin. That's a reality that we're faced with, our flesh. We're still tempted in our flesh. James says we're, we're, we sin when we are, uh, are tempted and drawn away of our own lust. That's why we need to constantly uh, examine ourselves and, and see uh, the Spirit's work in our life. But God's not going to change. God doesn't change His mind based on what we do or what we don't do. Now, we're given clear commands in Scripture of what we should do. And one day, in our glorified state, that we will be able to, we won't have to worry about this state of sin. But the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. He will not change His mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Talking to Jesus here. You're a priest forever. You're an eternal priest. God's oath underscores the permanence and seriousness of the divine promise. Look, we we look at oaths, and and they're pretty serious, right? In in the case of of going to court to give testimony or or whatever, that that someone would hold a Bible out, ask you to put your hand on it, and raise your hand and ask you to swear to God, there's a seriousness in that oath. And there's a seriousness in the divine promise as well. Paul makes this abundantly clear uh, in the case with Abraham, that in Jesus Christ we are blessed. Right? That the nations are blessed in Christ. And that as the gospel has gone forward, the nations have been blessed. What confidence do we then have that Jesus is forever interceding on our behalf? Well, what confidence do we have at this time that Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father and He's interceding on our behalf? Well, God confirmed it with an oath. He said that I swear... I will not change my mind. You will see my unchangeable nature. 
My study Bible had this note. The divine prophetic oath expressed in Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn, which Jesus fulfills, demonstrates the unchangeable permanence of the new priesthood of Christ. We see God's unchangeable promise. The word repent underscores God's immutable character. That cannot be expressed enough. God will not change His mind. God will not change according to uh, some, some standard that floats up and down, right? We have, in my job as a quality control inspector, we have, we have a, I'm given a print, I look, and there's some tolerances, plus or minus, whatever. That's what I judge things according to. But every once in a while, actually it happens quite frequently, it's a little bit outside of those tolerances, and so inevitably someone will say, oh yeah, it's good, it'll work. We change according to whatever ability that machinist may have or, or our standard changes according to that. But God's truth never changes. God's Word never changes. God's oath never changes. It will not change. We see, um, look at verse 23 back in, in Hebrews chapter 7. Well, let me say this. that it, Verse 21 is, is a, a parenthesis, a parenthetical. It's inserted in there for a purpose. We say in verse 20, and inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. It wasn't that he was just installed as the priest and it was according to what God said, but God condescending to us made an oath with Jesus Christ. And he gives this explanation in verse 21, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him. Now, in... uh, in the case with the Levitical priests, there was an ordinance given that these priests would carry out these duties uh, in, the, in the ministration of the temple. There was not an oath given to that. It was not a promise that they would minister forever. And that's evidence in the fact that you would have priests come and priests go. There would be a priest from year to year, the high priest changed. From year to year, there would be a different high priest. But he goes on to say, Um, In verse 21, these priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These priests um, changed from generation to generation. They, uh, according to death, this is God's unchangeable promise. The word repent underscores God's immutable character. And we see, but we do see this word repent um, in the Old Testament. Go to Genesis chapter 6. Now usually when we see the word repent, what do we think of? We think of someone turning from their sin. We think of someone changing their mind, changing their ways maybe. We we think of it in relation to man and, and, and if one's going one way, he turns around and goes the other. Genesis 6, look at verse 6. This is talking about the sin of man that had come up before God, um, before the flood. Here's that word repent. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. Now, let me say, it didn't. It, this word repent doesn't mean that God thought to Himself, oh no, what have I done? I changed my mind, so now I'm going to start over with eight people, and I'm going to wipe out every man on the face of this earth. It wasn't a moment of, 
that God thought to Himself, what in the world did I do in creating man? No, this has more to do with God's pity that He looks upon sinful man. With God's compassion that He looks upon sinful man. His disgust that He looks upon sinful man. And so what did He do? He commands Noah to build an ark. Noah builds an ark and there are eight souls saved in that ark. By the way, that ark points us to Christ. Salvation by one way and the door was shut on the ark. Remember, and it rained and all those things. So we see God's unchangeable promise. God's, again, let me say this, God is not subject to change as we are. Our emotions cause us to change, right? We, we get new information about things that causes us to change. I, I'm, I'm not the same pastor that I was 15 years ago. I don't have some of the same thoughts that I have had years ago. Why? Because I've studied the Scripture and that, and that the Scripture has changed my mind. It has caused me to change, um, to change my mind and to change some beliefs. It shows us God's pity for man, this, this repent. So, this oath is given for permanence. This oath is given for assurance for us. Notice the next, um, the next three verses, 23 through 25. It speaks to what I've been saying about His unchangeable nature and, and His permanence. Jesus is superior because of His permanence. Their ministry, the, the ministry of the uh, Hebrew, of the Le- Levitical priest, look at verse 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They were not allowed to continue forever. Why? Because they died. This infirmity, this transgression, this sin nature that we have have inherited from Adam, it leads us to eventually die. The Levitical priests all died and they were replaced. Just like one day I will be replaced. Just like one day, uh, wherever we may work, we will be replaced. Our position here is not permanent. Jesus lives forever and will never be replaced. That's what makes Him so superior. Right? That He came as a man, was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, was, was killed, was murdered, was crucified, died, went into the ground, and came out. By the way, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval that Jesus Christ was that perfect sacrifice. There can be no doubt on this sacrifice. It's it's guaranteed and and it is confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' seat next to the Father, coupled with the oath by the Father, speaks to the permanence of this office. Think about this. The priest in the Old Testament were constantly going about, constantly working. There was constantly things to do within the temple. Jesus Christ, upon His ascension back to heaven, what did He do? Sat down at the right hand of God. What do you do when you sit down? You're showing that I'm finished with a job, right? That I've done, I'm finished with this, and that, that's the, the, the picture we get of Jesus, that He sat down as showing us He's finished with that sacrifice, but the permanence of His priesthood that He constantly intercedes for us. Because of His permanence, His ability to save forever. We looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago. Now, there are those that would have you believe that you can lose your salvation. There are those that would have you believe that if you don't do things a certain way, that you could lose your salvation. That is a gross, at best, a gross misinterpretation of Scripture. A gross misinterpretation of Scripture. 
these that would teach that seek to put men and women in bondage to their legalistic system. There are systems of legalism that you have certain rules to follow. I grew up in one of those. Yes, the pastor preached on grace, taught on grace, but there was also this side of legalism of you had to dress a certain way, you had to do certain things, you couldn't do certain things, which had no biblical evidence to refrain from those things. I give you one for instance. Going to movies. That was forbidden. But yet, most of the church members had a TV and a VCR and watch, would watch the movies that was at the movies when they would come out on, on video cassette. That tells you how old I am, right? But you, you see the legalism there that you're bound by these things? Salvation, when we understand that salvation is a work of God, We understand that we're not bound to legalism. Now, we are bound by the moral law of God. And that is that that's how we should govern our life. We look at the Ten Commandments, and it's something that we don't do to gain favor with God, but as it were, it's a governance of our life. It's how we ought to live our life. Salvation is a work of God, and so those whom He saves, they are eternally secure in Him. And look, our, our, we're, we're saved eternally not because we hold tightly to Him, because He holds tightly to us. Look at John chapter 6. Turn over to John chapter 6. Verse 37. I think we've read this before on Wednesday night, but this speaks to the certainty of salvation. All that the Father give me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. When you come to God, to Christ, on His terms, by faith, repenting of your sin, you will be received and you will not be cast away. You will not be lost. Look at verse 39. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing. Jesus will not lose any of His sheep. That's what we rest in, is the promise of the Scripture. Philippians 1.6 If you want to look this up later. He who hath begun a good work in you will complete it. God saves us. He sanctifies us and He will glorify us in the future. Eternally secure, not because, again, not because of our holding on to Him. Why? Because our, our, our grip loosens. But because He holds on to us. Uh, while you're in John 6, look down at verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Our salvation is a work of God. Look down at verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on Me hath everlasting life. Eternal life. From God in salvation. The evidence of salvation is perseverance. Now, this has been somewhat of an underlying theme throughout the book of Hebrews. These Hebrews were under persecution. They have been warned to not uh, be guilty of unbelief like 
uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament were. They have been warned to not let go of the things that they have been taught. And that leads us to the perseverance of the saints. It leads us to those who are in Christ, to those who have come to Christ by faith, that the evidence of that is that you persevere no matter what. No matter what adversity. And look, it's not that we do it perfectly, right? Because we all, again, we have this sin nature that we have to battle. But the evidence of salvation is perseverance through whatever trial we may have. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is speaking of Christ here. In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. There's a reason that God puts His Spirit within us when He regenerates us, and it's so that we will have this seal of redemption. We will have this earnest of the Spirit, right? When, when you buy a house, you usually have to put some form of a deposit down, some form of a down payment, same thing with a car, whatever the case may be. There's some form of earnest, something that's going to guarantee you that you will purchase that. And that's the promise of the Spirit that God has given to us, that if He has put His Spirit within you, that is the promise that we have. And so it speaks to this permanence that we have, that Christ as the high priest, that in His work of salvation has permanently and forever saved those whom the Father has given to Him. The Levitical priests had to continually offer sacrifice for their sin. Man, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in that system. That there's always constantly working and doing and this sense of not ever doing enough. But Jesus once offered Himself, not offered a sacrifice and then offered Himself continually, but once offered Himself. And that's why we get the picture in in the Gospels when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent in twain, exposing what was taking place behind that curtain, that it was no longer sufficient. So we see that Jesus is superior because of His permanence, because of who He is and what He has done, because of the oath that the Father has given to Him. And then thirdly, in verse 26 through 28, we see this because of His character. Because of His character. Notice back in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy. Now, notice that phrase, became us. He became a man. Jesus Christ set aside His deity, became a man, took upon Himself the form of a servant, walked as a man in this earth, was tempted in all points like as we are, yet He was without sin. He is holy. That means He is separate. He is unlike any other. He is harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He has been exalted who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, 
First for his own sins. Why? Because he was sinless. And then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. They have this, this, this nature of sin, this, this propensity for sin. But he maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Again, let me say that the priests had to continually offer these sacrifices, yet Jesus once offered himself finishing the work. Because of His perfect sacrifice, the conscience of those whom He saves is freed from the guilt of sin. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 11 through 18. Because of His, because of his character, He can be the perfect sacrifice. Because of His sinlessness, because He is undefiled, because... Um, He is without sin. He can be that perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice removes the guilt of sin. Look at verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. No hope in the law, folks. There's no hope in the moral law. There's no hope in the ceremonial law. There's no hope in the law. You say, well, I'm not Jew. There's no hope in tradition. There's no hope in the Baptist tradition. There's no hope in uh, Church of Christ tradition. Whatever tradition you may be from, there is no hope in that tradition. Our hope is in Christ. And and those, those traditions don't take away sin. It is the preaching of the gospel. It is the work of God in salvation that takes away sin. Verse 12, but this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Job's done. No longer to offer sacrifice. Verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Folks, there is coming a day of reckoning, and it is coming upon us a lot quicker than we think. All the wickedness that is rampant in our world today, that's going to be judged one day by God. All these people that shake their fist in the face of God making accusations against Him, they're going to be crushed one day. These these, uh, leaders of of countries that raise their fist against God and would take pride in thinking that they have brought themselves to power and don't recognize that their powers are ordained by God, they will be crushed in judgment one day. Verse 14, for by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Again, there we go to our permanence and our salvation. That God would save us forever. He would sanctify us forever. Verse 15, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness for us, for after that He had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, Think about uh, Ezekiel 36 right here when we read this. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of sin, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. The offering is over with. I, I know that for years there has been this popular teaching 
within the church that Israel's going to rebuild the temple and they're going to institute the sacrificial system again. To what end, may I ask? What would there be a need to institute the temple and the sacrificial system again? Where is the temple of God? Right here. This is the temple of God. This is where God dwells. And as we'll see later on in Hebrews, our sacrifices are sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. So there's no need for that. Let's not bother ourselves with that. Verse 17, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Christ ended ended it all because of His sacrifice, because of His character. Now let me close with this. The promises God has made to us in His Word serve to assure us in a world of uncertainty He is in control and we can trust Him. I don't know about I don't watch the news very often, but what I watch the news, when I watch the news, I am disgusted by what I see. If I spend too much time dwelling upon the things that I see, guess what happens? I begin to grow, I begin to grow weary, I begin to go frustrated. My trust in God begins to weaken. This is evidenced by the oath that He made and the fulfillment of that promise. Let me remind you again the circumstances these Christians are under. Persecution. They had gone about 20 years without persecution. Everything had been great. Now all of a sudden a new leader takes over and he brings persecution again. They were being persecuted for being Christians and they were tempted to go back to their old way, their old religion. Now if we believe the Scripture, Daniel 12, 1, tells us in the end there will be a time that has never been since there was a nation. You want to write that down and look at it to go verify it? Daniel 12, verse 1. I don't know if you're aware of it. I hope you are. That persecution is heating up. Folks, it may be that they don't come to our homes and drag us out and kill us in the street. It may not be that they come to our church on our Sunday morning gatherings and shoot us. It may not be that. It may just be that they make laws to cause us to rethink why we gather. The new mandates coming down from the tyrant posing as a president. I don't say that to be funny or coy. I say that in all seriousness. Will eventually be made against the church. Folks, there's mandates coming down that are going to limit our ability to work unless we give in to those. Those things will come against the church and make it illegal to gather and worship to our Lord. Now let me ask you this. What will you do? When those mandates come that saying it is now illegal for you to gather as Christians and worship your God, what will you do? Will you trust the sovereign of the universe and defy tyrants? Folks, it may be, I don't say this to scare anybody, and I don't say this to sound like doom and gloom. It may be that we are down by the river gathering to worship God. It may be that we have to gather in in the woods and in trees and maybe find caves to gather to worship God. And it may be that there is a real threat that if they find us gathered singing praise and hearing instruction from the Word of God, that we have to suffer for the Gospel. Will you trust the sovereign of the universe and defy tyrants or will you submit to the tyrant and disobey God? 
Folks, we are faced with these realities more so than we've been faced with in our lifetime. Any, any, from, from whatever age we are here, from the youngest to the oldest, we are seeing things that we have never seen in our lifetime before. And we are faced with real questions and real concerns of how we're going to be faithful. Christians hid in the catacombs in Rome to have their worship service. Christians in China, there's a maze. A friend of mine that went to China on a mission trip said there was a maze of doors that they had to go through to get to the church that was gathering in an apartment building. There was a secret knock. Folks, these are real things that we're faced with this day. Will you trust God? If you trust Him for salvation, will you not trust Him to sustain you? These are things that we need to take into consideration. And oh, by the way, the things that we have learned in Hebrews, they prepare us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that in the opening of the sermon next week. Let's go to our Lord in prayer.